we came in past Cape Florida Lighthouse to Biscayne Bay. I remember how the sun glinted across the water that hot Saturday morning and how we could look down and see whole meadows of seaweed. The water was very clear and most of the bay was shallow. We could see a little settlement which Captain Frow told us was Coconut Grove. And farther along, we passed the mouth of the Miami River where there were a few houses. The largest on the south bank was Mr. William Brickles. We could see Fort Dallas on the north side. When we got to Lemon City, the water was deep enough so that we could come in to the long dock, though the captain told us that many times boats had to anchor out a ways and light her in. Our first thought was of the boys, for Johnny, the baby, was only 12 years old. Father, Sini, and I walked up the dock and Father asked a bystander if he had seen three boys named Douthit, and he told us to go ask Willie Filer because Willie knew everybody. Mr. Filer was postmaster, and he also ran a grocery store. Sure, your boys are here, Mr. Filer said. They got a camp all fixed up out at your homestead. Everybody liked Willie Filer, and no wonder. He borrowed a horse and wagon and hauled us and our things to the homestead, which was about five miles northwest of Lemon City. The road was a sand rut that wandered through thickets of oak, across open pineland, and around the edges of little prairies. We found the boys cutting trees and clearing a place for a house. It was so hot, we were glad to stand in the shade of the thicket while the boys told us how they had come from Gulf Hammock to West Palm Beach by train, and from there had walked along the beach with the barefoot mailman, paying one dollar each for the privilege. This walk took three days, and they camped that night at the houses of refuge along the beach. They had walked barefoot, too, and hung their shoes over their shoulders, because the easiest walking was right at the edge of the surf where the sand was hard. The reason the mailman could charge his passengers was because he owned the boats without which you couldn't cross the inlets or Biscayne Bay. He didn't charge for the boy's old foxhound, Pete. Welcome to the Story of Miami. Episode 18, Pioneer Days. The three decades from the end of the Civil War to the twilight of the 19th century were a brief but special moment in Miami's history. The final days of the South Florida frontier when the wooden porches of saloons and blacksmith shops lined the dusty roads of tiny towns that, but for the palm trees, could have been mistaken for any given tombstone or deadwood. When the visitors sailing up the shoreline from Coconut Grove to Fort Dallas and the Brickell Trading Post to Lemon City, or up the Miami River to the mills and citrus groves of the bush, could pick up on the pulsing energy of a people pitched headlong towards something inevitable. Indeed, we are about to embark on the story of how this moment was swept away. But before we do, we thought we'd take a final look at life on the Miami frontier and those who paved the way 
for a breathtaking revolution. The mail had always been an important lifeline on the bay. For many years, the mailboat from Key West was the area's sole connection to the outside world, bringing news and correspondence, supplies, and the occasional visitor. And its discontinuation during the Civil War had caused a great deal of hardship. When Gleason and Hunt moved in to establish their Kingdom of Dade in the wake of that war, they did not neglect to get a piece of the Postal Service action, securing the mail contract for themselves and placing their confidant, Edward Barnott, in charge of its delivery. During Reconstruction, it was Barnott's boat, with the conspicuous name Governor Gleason painted across the stern, whose appearance in Biscayne Bay heralded the arrival of news and letters from Key West. The residents expecting something had to find time to make their way down to Hunt's home to retrieve it. As time went on, and additional post offices opened, the mail carrier grumbled at the need for each extra stop. But for residents, it became easier and easier to stay informed. Beginning in the late 1870s, the Key West connection, for so long the only route in and out of the area, was by small degrees augmented by a new link. Until then, overland routes from the north had been all but unheard of, due in part to the gravity of Key West, but also due to the perennial emptiness of the northern reaches of Dade County, which stretched nearly 100 miles to the nearest settlements on the Indian River Lagoon. The first stepping stones for a lasting northward route, however, appeared in the final days of Reconstruction, when bold and adventurous mail carriers began walking the endless miles of beach between Biscayne Bay and the even more remote settlements appearing around the distant shores of Jupiter. This intermittent northward route intersected with a different service, the U.S. Life-Saving Service, forerunner of the modern Coast Guard, which, in 1876, built a series of shelters along southeast Florida's most deserted shores. Known as Houses of Refuge, these spacious two-story buildings were stocked with beds and supplies and staffed with a lonely keeper, whose job was simple, walk the coast after every storm and search for shipwrecked mariners who needed saving. House of Refuge Number 5 has a special place in Miami's history, for it was the first permanent structure built on Miami Beach. The building, constructed out of Florida pine and cypress shingles and encircled by a wide shady porch, stood overlooking the waves near today's 72nd Street in the North Beach neighborhood. In time, it became a popular destination for day-tripping picnickers, Another identical building was constructed at Old Fort Lauderdale on the New River, and another at a place called Orange Grove in modern Delray Beach. Several more were built further north, and besides offering salvation from the seas, it was these oases of civilization that eventually allowed the first regular mail service to be extended down the desolate beaches from Lake Worth Lagoon. Lake Worth is a long, narrow body of water tucked up against the Florida mainland 
and sheltered from the elements by a narrow strip of sandy barrier islands. It was first homesteaded in the 1870s. At the northern reaches of what was then still Dade County, these remote settlers received their mail not from Key West, but via a series of contractor routes that brought letters down from Titusville. In 1885, as the draw of Coconut Grove was beginning to take hold, Route number 6451 was created, co-opting the Houses of Refuge to extend service from Lake Worth to the post offices of Biscayne Bay. Known as the Barefoot Route, the service became the stuff of legends. For this six-day, 136-mile round trip was made every week by a lone mail carrier in his unshod feet. The route worked as follows. On Monday morning, the carrier set off by boat down to the southern end of Lake Worth, where he crossed over to the beach and walked with the letters over his shoulder down to the Orange Grove House of Refuge. There he camped for the night. On Tuesday, he hiked down the beach to the Fort Lauderdale House of Refuge. On Wednesday, he walked down to Baker's Hallover at the northern end of Biscayne Bay, from whence he sailed down the bay to deposit the mail on the docks at Lemon City, Miami, and Coconut Grove. Convalescing at Miami, he set off for the return journey on Thursday morning, finally completing the circuit on Saturday night. He got Sunday off and started all over again on Monday. These beach walkists, as they were known, usually traveled alone, though they were sometimes accompanied by visitors who could tag along for the price of one dollar. Many of Miami's early settlers wrote about reaching Lemon City and Miami this way during the late 1880s and early 1890s, a perilous and unforgettable start to their new life. In later years, tales of adventure and struggle along these endless miles of barren beaches came to occupy a mythical place in Miami lore, even spawning the 1951 comedy-adventure film The Barefoot Mailman. Several prominent members of the community served on the route, among them a man named Charles Pierce. Pierce had grown up on Lake Worth, where his family had pioneered the settlement on Hypoluxo Island. He was a dauntless explorer, leading tourists deep into the Everglades, and also became a distinguished leader of the Lemon City business establishment. His memoir, Pioneer Life in Southeast Florida, is a priceless record of the age. Charles Pierce's passionate leadership and constant presence in both Lake Worth and Biscayne Bay helped strengthen the northward connection and led finally to the opening of a road to Lantana, a settlement at the southern end of Lake Worth in 1892. Bringing an end to the era of the barefoot mailman, the road to Lantana brought a stagecoach three times a week, carrying supplies, passengers, and, of course, the mail. It terminated at Lemon City and thus established the little town as the gateway to Biscayne Bay. It was along this road that a wealthy oil and rail tycoon would soon arrive on a fateful visit that would change not just how the mail was delivered, but quite a lot more. Homesteading in Dade County was certainly not for the faint of heart. 
Under the homesteading laws, a 160-acre quarter section could be owned for the price of hard work, and a family arriving to stake their claim began with nothing but wild jungle. The first step typically entailed throwing together a flimsy tent or palmetto thatched hut that could provide some shelter while the arduous labor of clearing some space for a home and farm got underway. More well-to-do settlers turned to Bahamian migrants to clear the land, but the regular folks put their own bare hands to the axe and hoe, laboring for days under the hot sun and endless assault of mosquitoes. The beating rays and barrage of insects compelled everyone to stay covered from head to foot, maintaining the long sleeves and slacks or ladies' petticoats that were then fashionable elsewhere in America. And this stifling attire, unthinkable today, was worn even during hard labor on hot summer days. Many of those who started from scratch ran out of money before they could get off the ground, or were too discouraged by the conditions, abandoning their claims and leaving them for some other hopeful trailblazers to pick up where they left off. In 1857, Mary Douthit Conrad recalled her experience homesteading near Lemon City at the age of 16 with her father, three brothers, and sister. Our opening scene is her tale of arrival. She continued, quote, Our homestead was near an upper fork of Little River, part high pine land where we built our house and had our grove, and part lowland. Little River at our place wasn't much of a stream, and above us it petered out into the Everglades. But near where the Northeast 2nd Avenue Bridge is today, there were some large springs that made Little River fine and deep below that place. There was no sawmill in the Bay Area in 1892, and lumber had to be shipped in from Cedar Keys, Florida. But we didn't need much. The boys built our house of pine logs, which they cut on the homestead. They removed the bark and daubed the cracks between the logs with a mixture of lime, sand, and water, then whitewashed the daubing with a thin paste of lime and water. The house had two stories, a living room below and the space above partitioned into two bedrooms, one for father and the boys and one for Sini and me. The steps were like a ladder. We made frames to hold the mattresses, and from the packing boxes we made cupboards and tables. The windows were covered with cotton netting to keep out the mosquitoes. A father drove a pipe a few feet into the ground and put a pitcher pump on it. This gave us a good supply of water. Our land was covered with palmettos, pines, scrub oaks, wild grapevines, and kunti plants. It took a lot of work to clear it with grubbing hose. The thick brown palmetto roots were laced everywhere at the surface of the ground, or just under it. They came out in chunks as long as my arm, and about ten inches thick. These were burned in piles. My brothers managed to clear ten acres our first year, and they planted orange, lemon, and other fruit trees. We also had a large vegetable garden in the winter, with sweet potatoes the year round. We always had enough vegetables to share with neighbors, we didn't see our neighbors often, for they were as busy as we were, fixing up their places, but we would always lend one another a helping hand when needed. End quote. 
the opportunities available to pioneers to make a living were finally diversifying by the time Conrad and her family arrived. Nearly everyone grew tropical fruits of one sort or another on their property, which could be warehoused at Lemon City for shipping to Key West. Small-scale kunti production was also practiced in every household, but industrial kunti production continued to be a growing enterprise, as the number of water-powered kunti mills along the rivers steadily grew. Another fascinating enterprise, which we have not had a chance to discuss before, was sponging. The first shipment of natural sponges from Key West to New York, way back in 1850, had caused a sensation. Their performance as cleaning tools and for cushioning caused demand to skyrocket. These humble periphera could be easily hooked off the seabeds where they grew in great numbers. And for many decades, sponging was one of Florida's most lucrative industries. For some reason, it never became a centerpiece of Biscayne Bay industry, though small-scale sponging could be done in the rich beds of the South Bay, and residents could find work aboard the sponging ships that plied the Keys. There was evidently enough volume flowing through Lemon City for Charles Pierce to open a sponge warehouse in the 1890s. Other bulk commodities that shipped out of Lemon City included pineapples from the Sweeting and Filer plantations on Elliott Key, which had the distinct advantage of having a long shelf life. And after D.K. Knight opened his sawmill, an insatiable demand for Dade County pine, prized for its toughness and resistance to termites, kept his saws humming day in and day out, to the great dismay of his neighbors. Imports ranged from liquor to coffee beans and all manner of manufactured goods. And with the growth of industry, demand for skilled labor, carpenters, blacksmiths, stoneworkers, created still more opportunities and helped drive the growth of the local entrepreneurial class. Indian traders acquired fabrics, jewelry, bird plumage, ornaments, and various odds and ends whose rarity in northern markets allowed the trading posts, Brickles, of course, being the most successful, to thrive. Meanwhile, down in Coconut Grove, the emergence of the hospitality and tourism business brought a tremendous influx of capital, especially to the Peacocks, whose hotel powered the nascent service industry, and as it dawned on the traveling class, that Biscayne Bay was unmatched for sport fishing and sailing, demand for tour guides, pilots, and skippers also grew. The first retail markets emerged as well, giving rise to the restaurants, saloons, pool halls, and barber shops of Lemon City, and the growing need for civil services brought new opportunities for school teachers, religious leaders, and government officials. The oldest occupation of all, wrecking, was still a major source of income. The 1870 wreck of the brig Three Sisters was one of the most famous examples. Her hold was full of fresh-cut lumber, and when she was spotted run aground in bear cut after a storm, virtually every man on the bay swarmed her like ants to a dead lizard. It was one of the only times the remote population was successfully prosecuted for illegal wrecking, as everybody involved was hauled to Key West for trial in federal court. But 
despite attempts to recover the cargo, Three Sisters Lumber found its way into the walls and floorboards of many an old Dade County home. Another notable accident occurred up north in 1878, when the ship Providencia ran aground on the beaches outside Lake Worth. In order to lighten the load and break free, the Providencia was forced to give up her cargo of 20,000 coconuts, leaving them to the local settlers. The ensuing proliferation of coconut palms in the area, visible from passing ships by the 1880s, gave this strip of barrier islands a new identification, Palm Beach. The great volume of shipwrecks throughout the Straits meant that an assortment of useful items could always be found washed up on the outer beaches. Major storms were followed by trips to Key Biscayne to see what valuable commodities, dry goods, canned foods, furniture, building materials, had been deposited on the sand. Grove resident Mary Barr Monroe later wrote, quote, Beachcombing was a fascinating occupation. Now, one day, one of my young friends wanted a cradle for her firstborn and said to her husband, I wish you would go over to the Cape and see if you can't find a cradle. He did go and came back with a cradle. It was a little worse for having come from a wreck and laid on the beach for a while, but when it had been painted of French gray and neatly put together, it proved all it should be. End quote. In 1886, a legendary event known as the Great Wine Wreck occurred when settlers up and down the coast awoke to beaches covered with casks and crates of Spanish wine. Charles Pierce wrote in his memoir that, quote, 100-gallon casks of Spanish claret lay strewn along the coast. So close together, one could have walked for a mile along this part of the beach without once having to step off a cask, end quote. Ralph Monroe, for his part, recalled, quote, The entire population of the southeast coast declared whole holiday and moved to the shore in mass. And oh, what a time everybody had. For many months, there was scarcely any solid food consumed and no traffic on the bay save rafts of casks. Jolly Jack Peacock was an especially successful collector so much that there seemed no possibility of drinking the entire stock. He finally took the heads out of some of the casks and bathed in the wine, thinking it would help his rheumatism. Even the Indians flocked out from the Everglades, and in some cases sawed casks in two, losing half the contents, and then balanced the resulting tub between two canoes and boated it up the river. End quote. The pioneers definitely found ways to enjoy themselves. Out here in the wilderness, human connection was an invaluable commodity, and a major component of the Peacock's success was that they introduced to the bay its first community watering hole. The Peacock Inn, through parties and picnics, put up Christmas trees, hosted club meetings, and so forth, fostering a communal spirit that carried the pioneers through the many hardships of life at the edge of civilization. When Lemon City emerged, its churches became the centers of the town's social life, 
coming together to put on dances, celebrations, and box socials. Lasting friendships were formed, and young men and women met, fell in love, and married. Conrad wrote, quote, Taffy pulls and hayrides were church-sponsored social activities. Sometimes ice was brought in on the boat from Key West, and we would have an ice cream social, making the cream in hand freezers. Beach picnics were popular. These often included a hunt for turtle eggs and driftwood, end quote. In order to raise money to build their church, the Lemon City Baptists teamed up with the Methodist and Episcopal Church to put on Aunt Jolly's Waxworks, an original play by resident Mrs. T.A. Winfield. The play was staged at Charles Pierce's Sponge Warehouse, where Conrad wrote, quote, Each character had to act like a wax doll and was first seen in a picture frame. Mr. Strayer then pretended to wind up the doll and it would step out of the frame and march across the stage with body rigid and only feet and lower legs moving. We had quite a problem getting costumes for 25 people. My brother Bob wore father's big old black hat and represented Christopher Columbus. Mr. Spivy's hat was so big for him, it kept falling down over his face. Get this hat off my face, Mr. Spivy whispered to Mr. Strayer, since, as a doll, Mr. Spivy wasn't supposed to move. End quote. There was no shortage of practical jokesters in the community. Captain Dick Carney of Coconut Grove was a noted wisecracker who, on one occasion, switched two sleeping babies in their cots while their parents were at the dance. At the end of the night, the unsuspecting mothers took the wrong babies home. Another Grove resident, Count Nugent, would show up to social events in full formal attire, except for bare feet, claiming he didn't want to seem pretentious. Women taught each other how to make hats out of palmetto fronds, and Mary Bar Monroe wrote, quote, Should any strange woman arrive from the north, as they sometimes did, with a particularly attractively cut collar or trimming or new fashion skirt, Mrs. Peacock always managed in some way to get a pattern of the article so that we could all make one like it. And the way in which New York fashions were imitated in five-cent calicos was interesting to say the least, end quote. The Seminoles were often invited to join in on the activities. Friends such as Dr. Tiger appear frequently in photos of gatherings at the Peacock Inn. Conversely, Conrad wrote of being invited to the Green Corn Dance, the Seminoles' annual thanksgiving to the Creator, when many camps gather to resolve disputes and start anew. The traditional stomp dance is performed, and for a white settler like Conrad to be invited to witness it would have been an honor. Conrad wrote, quote, At dark, the Indians began to beat their drums. These were made of skins stretched across hollow logs, some large and some quite small. The dance was performed in a circle, no hands held as we often do in group dancing. The women wore rattles made of small turtle shells filled with stones tied around their ankles. The Indians would chant over and over while their feet moved to the same rhythm. End quote. 
despite all the fun times that were had, pioneer life was fraught with danger. In these days, long before the miracles of modern medicine, one did not want to get wounded or sick. Deaths from pneumonia, yellow fever, and tuberculosis were commonplace. Women died in childbirth, and their babies frequently followed. One pioneer died from burns sustained while simply cooking dinner. One had to be vigilant when venturing into the wilderness, too. While exploring in the woods north of Arch Creek one day, Ned Pent discovered the body of Ezekiel Page, whose cause of death was determined to be exposure after becoming lost. John Addison, longtime resident of the hunting grounds, was taken by a rattlesnake bite, and Ed Hamilton's tenure as barefoot mailman came to an abrupt end when he failed to show up with the letters one day and was never seen again. The leading theory was that someone else had taken his boat across Hillsborough Inlet, forcing him to swim across the alligator-infested water, whereupon he was probably eaten alive. The awesome force of nature also made itself felt. In his memoir, Charles Pierce recalled writing out the hurricane of 1876 as a boy, crammed into a small frontier home with 24 other people. When they emerged the next morning, quote, A scene of desolation met our gaze. The trees were completely stripped of their foliage, and small branches were lying flat on the ground. In the front yard, the new settler's furniture was scattered far and wide, blown from the porch in the night, end quote. The Frows had been picnicking on Soldier Key when the storm hit, and Ralph Monroe later recounted their harrowing ordeal. Quote, Head to wind, their hands grasping the edge of the stonework, while the storm stripped the key of trees, drove the breakers bodily over everything save their masonry perch, and bombarded them with a fierce fusillade of leaves, branches, coral driftwood, shells, and miscellaneous wreckage. End quote. Though rare, violent crime and murder was also not unheard of. The most notorious case occurred when Sam Shershot Lewis gunned down Ed Highsmith and George Davis in the street outside his Lemon City saloon. On the run from justice in the days that followed, he shot and killed Rhett McGregor, too, and for his crimes was ultimately hanged from a pole and lynched by the mob. Reflecting on the sort of gallows humor that pioneers used to get through life on the frontier, Conrad wrote, quote, In a pioneer country, you learn to bear up and take what you have to. And even in the sadness of death, there was sometimes a flash of humor. Like when my brother Bob and one of his friends painted a waterline on a coffin for smooth sailing. Mr. Ned Pence humor went even further. He was an expert boat builder, and once when he was called upon to make a coffin, he put in a centerboard, that is, the keel of a boat. Of course, after he got a laugh from everyone, he removed it. End quote. There were no cemeteries before the 1890s. Burials took place in backyards or out in the woods, and were often very difficult due to the ever-present limestone bedrock. 
The oldest cemetery in Miami is Pinewood Cemetery, deeded in 1897. Hidden in a suburban neighborhood of Coral Gables near Cocoa Plum Circle, this contemplative refuge holds the remains of many of our early pioneers, a place where we can still visit with them today. A quiet evening in 1896. On the shores of Biscayne Bay, the pioneer sits alone with her thoughts and gazes across the water. The setting sun throws a shock of neon across the southern horizon, which fades from brilliant orange to purple to black. And through the cool sea air comes to her ears, not the rattle of trucks on a highway, the distant scream of an illicit street race, or the whine of jet engines overhead, but the sound of the leaves blowing softly in the wind, the waves lapping gently at her feet the rhythmic chirp of crickets, the warm laughter of a nearby dinner party. As the colors in the moonless sky slowly fade to blackness, they reveal not a scattered handful of only the brightest stars, but a glittering canvas of thousands, millions of twinkling points of light, so numerous her eyes can barely even tell them apart and sweeping across the heavens a splendid streak of hazy light, so faint it barely registers, a single priceless brushstroke from a celestial painter no earthly artist can ever hope to match. It is the end of an era, a time when all Miamians are surrounded by nature. Though she doesn't know it yet, the wondrous sight of the Milky Way is soon to be traded in for the marvel of man's invention. From the faraway world of civilization, the engines of change are steaming towards Biscayne Bay, and the distant roar of coal and steel thunders ominously over the horizon. (laughs) 